Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. And I split up the Genesis flood on purpose. Uh, Last week we talked about Noah and his life and what was set up up to the flood. Today we're gonna talk about the flood itself. In fact, we're gonna be talking about this for two weeks at least because it's such a critical part of our understanding of world history, geology, paleontology, history of man, etc. And I know we've been exposed to a lot of different views uh, on this uh, within the church world. So today I've entitled our message, The Genesis Flood, Believe It or Not. Dominoes. Most of us have played with dominoes at some point in our lives. And I'm not talking about the kind of dominoes that, you know, sometimes the older people are playing with that have little numbers on them and you kind of play together with your friends and social groups. I'm talking about the kind of dominoes where you set them on edge and then, you know, you might set up hundreds of them, maybe thousands of them, and you tip them over, you tip one over in anticipation of a massive chain reaction. I'm just going to show you a little example of what I'm talking about, and there will be a theological application. We're not just showing dominoes today. Somebody's got way too much time on their hands. Whoa, all right, you get the idea. We're going to cut it there because that actually goes on, I think, for 20 minutes. I believe that was 250,000 dominoes. Now, many of us did that as children. I never did anything like that, but, you know, we did something like that. And those of us who did this also remember the really incredible, frustrating moments. And what were those? A little unintended bump when you've got half of them set up, just a little unintended bump or movement, and the whole system falls before you ever intended it because mom and dad weren't there to see it yet. And you can spend a lot of time and effort building something only to have it all come apart by bumping something that's quite a distance away. Beliefs are like dominoes. They are interconnected. And you may bump one over in the area of Genesis without realizing that when you bump over a belief in Genesis, it affects the Gospels, it affects the Epistles, it affects the inspiration of Scripture, and it might even affect the deity of Christ. And I want to talk about that a little bit today because a lot of people easily dismiss Genesis as though we can't really trust this as history. The problem is all of these things are interconnected. The unity of Scripture is one of the things that gives it credibility. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 contain multiple themes that are under attack today, and most Christian colleges and seminaries and most Christians are really kind of okay with that because they really don't know how to defend 
what has been a historic belief system about creation, about the flood, creation in chapters 1 and 2, the flood in chapters 7 and 8, the genealogies of early man in chapters 5 and 10, the separation of peoples and languages in chapter 11, human dispersion, all of that stuff. If you dismiss these accounts in Genesis 1 through 11 of the early earth, early man, etc., as myth or legend, you're going to make concessions elsewhere that you may not have intended to make. There is a domino effect. And I want to keep, you, keep that in mind. I want you to keep that in mind as we look through this today. So we're going to dive into the credibility of the Genesis flood story. It's going to take at least two weeks, there will be a break of a week in between. We're not going to go for two weeks right now. We're going to get into all kinds of related issues. We're going to talk about biblical interpretation, how we should look at Genesis 1 through 11 the way it was written. We're going to talk about related theological issues. We're going to talk about the geologic record. We're going to talk about paleontology. We're going to talk about mass extinctions. We're going to talk about the Ice Age. We're going to talk about the impossibility of a local flood and how that would not have been included in Genesis 6. We're going to talk about dating confusion around rocks and fossils and the predominant views today and why some of that could be questioned. We're going to talk about how it could have happened. Is there enough water on the planet to do what the Bible describes? How do you get mountains underwater with the amount of water on the planet? The necessity of, of catastrophe to explain Earth's history. If you want to get rid of the flood, you better come up with another major catastrophe because the, the whole world reeks of a catastrophic event in the past. The ability of the ark to hold all the animals described, the miraculous elements involved, and more. Now you see why it's going to take at least two weeks. My approach is going to be this. Why I believe in the, general, the generous flood as the generous flood? The Genesis flood. I'm over jet lag. I have no more excuses. So we're going to talk about the generous flood. All right. Nobody's looked at it that way before. God was very generous with the water. All right, Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7 is going to be on page 5 in your Bible. Probably, if you grab the Bible in front of you, it's going to be on page 5. And we're going to look at the flood account. We're going to read the first chapter. Now, again, we, we're not rereading Noah and kind of what led up to this and his preparation of the ark. We're going to look at the flood story beginning in chapter 7. Again, it's on page 5, the first book of the Bible. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean too. So it looks like by sevens, a male and female, many say that was 14 then, uh, and those that are not clean too, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky, by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of the earth. So this is for the reproduction after the flood. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I'll blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I've made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came on the earth. I realize that's a problem for many of you. Ancient genealogies are like that. I do take them literally. It seems that both in the gene pool and possibly in the atmosphere, there were a lot less threats to human life. We believe that changed. Soon after the flood, you'll see these genealogies shorten, shorten, and shorten until they're about 100 years or more and now less. Noah, his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. 
Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark by Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Now this wasn't like a sailboat. This is just meant to be a floating box, basically. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that the high, every high mountain everywhere under the heavens was covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher. That would be about 23 feet. And the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on earth perished, birds, cattle, beasts, every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth a hundred and fifty days." Just a couple more verses. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused the wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. The water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. We'll stop there. It took a while before it was safe to get out of the ark. By the time it was done, I believe it was about ten and a half months that they were on the ark. Why I believe in a literal Genesis flood. First, it reads like historical narrative. This is a big deal when you're dealing with interpretation of Scripture. So the world of literature has many different genres or types or styles uh, of literature. And everyone knows this intuitively. Whether you've studied this or not, you automatically know it because when you were educated, your brain sort of learned to sort this out uh, as you were educated and were exposed to different kinds of literature. It's an implicit part of our understanding process when we see and hear new information. Let me give you a few examples. Listen to these opening words and I want you to think through what kind of genre or style of literature I'm describing. Quote, please identify all parts before assembly. Well, so that's technical instructions. That's kind of a style of literature. You know it's gonna be no nonsense how to put something together. A priest, a rabbi, and a Baptist minister went into a bar. What is that? That's not historical narrative. That's not instruction, that's a joke. It's not history because a Baptist minister would never go into a bar. All right, the priest and the rabbi would, but not the Baptist. We all know that. I was raised Baptist. It's the NFL, the No Fun League. All right. So that's humor. 
as well as was the follow-up. Thank you for laughing. Here we go. At 6 p.m. on May 18, 2023, Danielle Smith and Rachel Notley, two women who do not like each other, debated policy. What is that? It's historical narrative. It's the news. The news is supposed to do historical narrative, right? It's supposed to be history. Your wet, soft lips are like dew on the grasses of Eden. That's love poetry by a lovesick male who's been reading Song of Solomon too much, all right? There's verses in the Bible just like that. That's love poetry. You know if you hear that, it's not historical narrative. It's somebody who's going to get slapped, all right? You read and interpret each type of literature based on how you view the genre, all right? So those were some potential examples of literature. Now I'm going to read some real Bible verses, and I want you to do the same thing. What kind of literature is this? A sower went out to sow. Well, that's not history. That's Jesus telling a story. In fact, there's, there's a category of story. That's a parable. You're right. Good job. It's a parable. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless his holy name. Well, that's a psalm. It's going to be poetry towards God. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. What is that? That's, it's not commands, even though it says to do it. It's wisdom literature. It's like reading Aesop's fables, only it's inspired. It's the book of Proverbs. Thou shalt not murder. That's not Aesop's fables anymore. Now we're into law. Those are exacting statements from God about ethical behavior. There, there's no bending that one one way or another. On my bed, night after night, I sought him whom my soul loves. Okay, that's Song of Solomon. I'm sorry about that. I read Song of Solomon a lot as a teenager to keep myself awake in church. Anyway, that's Song of Solomon. Again, it's love poetry. You say you wouldn't look at historical narrative the way you would look at love poetry. Now, Genesis 1 through 11. Listen and tell me what kind of, what kind of genre of scripture this is. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast. Now the man had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, filled with violence. Then God said to Noah, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. What does this read like? It reads like history, historical narrative. The water prevailed on the earth 150 days. It's pretty specific, isn't it? In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. Well, now we're being really specific. We're dating it, and we're talking about a physical location where the ark rested. These are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. There's a lot of specificity in Genesis 1 through 11, and those are excerpts from Genesis 1 through 11, where we're dealing with creation, early man, the fall of man, the flood, a couple of key genealogies that date mankind, basically, the separation of nations, separation of languages, which ultimately became racial separation as you had genetic inbreeding in certain places on the earth, and people became basically different skin colors and so on, eventually. All of those quotes are from Genesis 1 through 11. They're all written as historical narrative. 
In fact, Genesis 12 begins with the life of Abraham, and people who just can't deal with Genesis 1 through 11 don't doubt Abraham and his descendants and the stories of his life. What gives us the right to just say we can erase Genesis 1 through 11 because we might have some problems from some other scientific disciplines. We're going to just discard it, and we're going to start believing the Bible in Genesis chapter 12. I think you need to be careful about the domino effect here, all right? Now, we don't all have to agree on everything here. This may not be an A issue, how you view the flood. The problem is, it touches other A issues. And we're going to get into that. Why do we start believing history at chapter 12? And question creation, the flood, people, language, dispersion. They're all written as historical narrative. It's a dangerous hermeneutical game to do that because the question is, where does it end? Where is, where is the Bible serious? Where do we take what Jesus said seriously? Where can we just explain it away and say he couldn't have meant that? In this case, we're saying Moses couldn't have meant that. It's a dangerous game. All right. According to Moses' recorded history, the world was wicked. Faith existed in very few. To be specific, in Noah and some of his relatives. God believed that faith could not survive the future because he had given to mankind free will. And he could see where it was leading. And also, mankind was wicked, specifically violence is called out, and God decided he was going to start over, basically. He told Noah to build a massive floating structure I believe it had three floors. It was, by a short account, 450 by 75 by 45, more likely, and this is based on cubits, more likely it was 510 feet by 85 feet by 51 feet. So a cubit is basically middle finger to the end of your elbow in the ancient world. That's a cubit. And there's some variation in cubits, so it kind of depends which ancient culture you're talking about. So you've got about an 18-inch cubit, you've got about a 20-inch cubit. If you go by the longer cubit, because Noah had long arms, 510 by 85 by 51. For 55 to 75 years, based on some internal dating you do in Noah's life, the age of his children, etc., for about 55 to 75 years, it seems that Noah and his family worked on this ark while he suffered untold ridicule from the people around him. When it was over, God directed miraculously there are miracles involved in this. You can't do what was done in Genesis 7 and 8 without the active hand of God in nature. God miraculously directed pairs of animals to the ark for a post-flood era of reproduction. And Noah and his family boarded. After they boarded, massive weather chaos accompanied massive tectonic plate shifting. Volcanic activity would have skyrocketed all around the world, including ocean floors. The world of water would have been like a giant washing machine. Unimaginable chaos ensued. Earthquakes would have been constant. 
Earthquakes in the ocean, earthquakes on land would have called, caused tsunamis, uh, hurricanes, all kinds of things. Mountains, not as high as current mountain ranges, and we'll talk about that, because mountains back then weren't as high, therefore it was much easier to cover them completely. The earthquakes, volcanoes, and lava flow on the ocean floors would have caused warming oceans and a mixing of the oceans like we haven't seen since then. Tsunamis, tidal waves, etc. That would have caused warmer water to be further north. Massive evaporation from warming oceans would have caused constant rains and snow everywhere. And eventually this likely led to the ice age that we know of six to 8,000 years ago. New mountains formed as the tectonic plates smashed together again, higher than before, which is why if you go to Mount Everest today, there are marine fossils near the top, by the way. Did you know that? There are marine fossils near the top of Mount Everest, probably from the end of the flood and the new creation of mountains and the world we experience today. Massive amounts of organic and land vegetation, both from the oceans and land, was encased, which is why we would have coal deposits, oil deposits, etc. Massive graveyards, extinction graveyards that exist all over the world, exist as evidence of some great catastrophe that took place in the past on this planet. The violent weather began, if you look at the second month as, you know, if you used our calendar, began on February 17th, went until January 1st when the water receded enough to get out, and there was a period of calm at the end of that. So it was about a 10 and a half month process. It is written as history just like the rest of Genesis we should not easily dismiss it. So I'm going to give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. We'll talk about the scientific side of this more next week. Biblical writers didn't dismiss it. This is where this gets a little dangerous. The second point, it is affirmed by multiple biblical authors and Jesus himself. Here's where I have major concerns about many Christians' views of Genesis 1 through 11, how they think it may not matter or they want to dismiss any kind of a normal literal interpretation. So, if you're a Christian and you struggle with sort of the geology or paleontology and other issues related to maybe how old the earth is or how old mankind is, those kinds of things, and you want to honor the Bible, what happens is, and there's a lot of Christians, and some of you represent that, some of you are my good friends, we'll have coffee in two weeks and debate everything I'm saying here. So you'll want to be consistent with the scriptures and your scientific worldview, which may not be compatible. And so what a lot of Christians will do is say, well, this, there was a flood because I believe the Bible, but I believe it was just a local flood. It wasn't really a big deal. It was a regional local flood. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about that because, again, people want to be committed to the scriptures, but they also want to be committed to their geological, paleontological views that require hundreds of millions or billions of years of life on earth. And so they land with this compromise, a local regional flood to honor Genesis, and then macroevolution and hundreds of millions of years to explain geology, paleontology, and anthropology. All right, you understand what I'm saying here? We're, we're kind of stuck with that. So if you're a Christian here, you've got a lot of background in geology or paleontology or anthropology, you're kind of stuck with this, okay, I want to believe the Bible, but I also got these textbooks at home that seem to make me have a different view of some things, and you're trying to put those together. So that group of people is saying, okay, there was a flood, but it wouldn't have been a serious flood. It would have been a local or regional flood. 
One of the problems with that is the domino effect theologically. And I just want to tell you the tension that you have to deal with. What if later authors affirm a global catastrophic flood? So what if you get to other biblical authors and they do make it clear it was fully global, not local? What does it do to God's word being inspired or God breathed if they're wrong? What does it do to my view of Jesus if Jesus actually gets it wrong? That's the domino effect and that's the thing you're kind of stuck with if you don't accept Genesis 7 and 8 as somewhat literal. Do later authors speak of a full global catastrophe with one surviving family? That's the question. I think they do. In my opinion, Genesis clearly is outlining a global flood, so you might say what's well, presented that way because those were the people who wrote it. They thought everyone was wiped out even if they didn't. There's a bunch of people on the earth that never were affected by this. You might believe that, but here's the problem. Genesis seems to speak of this global cataclysm, so the writers after that would not feel the need to clarify global versus local. They assumed a universal catastrophe. And you have mentions of the flood in Psalms, Isaiah, Matthew, Luke, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Hebrews, all of them refer to the flood. So the question is, even though they wouldn't have felt the need to say global versus regional or global versus local, because they would have just assumed it was universal because Genesis is written that way, still in some of their language, you see now under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit later on, they're referring to a worldwide cataclysm. Matthew 24, verses 37 to 49. So here you got Matthew's sort of on the spot here, and I hate to say it, but so is Jesus, because Jesus is the one that Matthew's quoting. For the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus in judgment, is going to be just like the days of Noah, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Here's the problem. Jesus is referring to universal judgment in the future, and he's using as a reference point a universal judgment on mankind from the past. You say, well, that's not quite as clear as I'd like, Paul. Okay, I get it. 1 Peter 3.20, 1 Peter 3.20, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now you got one of the apostles, Peter, I love Peter, I'm, I'm just so much like Peter. First one to speak, foot in the mouth, you know, first one to get a sword out and fight for Jesus, anyway. So Peter's saying, eight people survived the flood, all right. 2 Peter 2.5, did not spare the ancient world, speaking of the whole world, but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others. God brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Seems to be all of humanity, eight people surviving again. 2 Peter 3, 5-7. When they um, maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water, but by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment. Okay, so what you've got here is Peter speaking of universal creation, you see that there, moves to a universal flood, and now he's moving to a universal future destruction of the planet when God reshapes it for what might be the new heaven and earth. When you reject Genesis' claim of a global flood, it gets complicated. When you say Jesus and the apostles are wrong, 
it gets complicated. There's a domino effect theologically. You can believe whatever you want. I'm just telling you, you're going to be at tension with other theological beliefs that you do not want to be at tension with. So the flood itself, not an A issue. But when you start tampering with these other issues, they become A issues, big issues, big deal. All right. Third, the flood described in Genesis cannot practically or scientifically be limited to a local or regional catastrophe. So let's just deal with it that way, all right? So now I'm going to talk about all the reasons I believe that the flood could not have been local, that we have reasons to take Genesis 7 and 8 quite literally and at face value. Again, remember the motivation to limit the flood scope is this, all right? So if, if you're a geologist, paleontologist, if that's your background in school, if the flood is global and the flood explains geology, paleontology, etc., then the fossil record, geological structures, and anthropology have to be explained through Genesis 1 through 11. If the flood is global, we'd all kind of concede then, okay, Genesis 1 through 11 is pretty literal, and that's our history. If the flood is local and just hit one part of the globe where Noah lived, then you can say, okay, these other fields of science have theories that can avoid the God factor entirely, and we can explain geology, paleontology, anthropology through hundreds of millions of years, billions of years. Now, next week, we're going to get into those scientific issues in greater detail, and so I really look forward to that. Okay. First, let's look at the reasons a local flood just doesn't make a lot of sense. This is not an exhaustive list, but we're going to spend our remaining time here. First, the purpose of judgment is thwarted. The whole point of God's judgment on the earth was the wickedness of man. And he's talking about all mankind. The only person that God's really pleased with seems to be Noah and his family. Faith is ready to be lost from the earth, and a local flood doesn't really address this. If we only have a problem with Noah's neighborhood, God should have simply said to Noah, hey, I need you to move to a different neighborhood. I mean, it doesn't look like there's any good girls in the youth group for your boys to, to date, so, so we need to get you to go to a suburban environment 100 miles north where the culture's a little better and just relocate there. God didn't do that. The world was wicked. The text clearly indicates that God create, uh, regretted the creation of mankind in general. So the whole purpose of judgment is thwarted. And we're going to put the list up here in its entirety here, and we're going to kind of walk through these. So if you want to take notes, this is not exhaustive. Second, the point of animal preservation is mute. To me, this is the obvious one. If you're only going to have a local or regional flood that's going to affect one continent at most, but let's say it's a big regional flood. This is not downtown Calgary a few years ago because we didn't have some you know, flood remediation issues settled. We're talking about a massive, at least on a continent, extinction-bearing, watershed, chaotic moment. Otherwise, why would you build an ark? There's plenty of animals everywhere else. You're not preserving anything. So the point of animal preservation is mute if you've got a regional flood. This is a huge issue. The ark, if you've got a 20-inch cubit, is 510 feet by 85 feet wide by 51 feet deep with multiple internal decks and levels. This took 50 to 70 years to build. It was the equivalent, because people have done this and it's been recreated, I believe, in Ohio. 
It was the equivalent of a container ship holding 450 semi-trailers of cargo. Do you know they take those semi-trailers off container ships and they drop them on, you know, railroads? Go, all right. So 450 containers could have fit in this floating ark. 450 containers. It was designed to hold all land-dependent, air-breathing species. Now, uh, scientists estimate that 98% of all species are actually water dwellers. I didn't know that. Most things that live on this planet relate to the water. 98%. 2% is all the ark has to deal with. It's handling the 2% of air-breathing, land-dependent creatures. And I know some of you are going to get all caught up, well, you know, what about mammoths, and what about dinosaurs, and what about big animals, and so on. Most animals aren't big. The ark could have handled all of them, especially juveniles, including dinosaurs. And if God wanted to miraculously get them on the ark, I'm going to say this whole thing's a miracle, so I don't have a problem with that. And remember this too, there aren't as many animal species as you think. A horse, a zebra, and a donkey are all related. They're all one kind. They're all related. Then after they get off the ark, there's all sorts of, you know, breeding, inbreeding, genetic mutation that I would call microevolution, not macroevolution. They don't become other kinds, but within a species, they become very diverse post-flood. A local flood doesn't make a lot of sense here. Animal preservation makes no sense. Why save the animals? Animals can outrun floods. They're better at it than people. Animals go to higher ground. If some die, so what? There's seven other continents or six other continents with animals that are just the same. The whole point of building the ark is based on a global flood. Next, why birds on the ark? Again, a local flood wouldn't kill birds. A few nests are drowned. Birds have an edge. They have wings. They fly. They hit higher ground easily. A local flood would not be any threat to birds. They just go uphill or they get out of the way. They're very good at that. Truly high water doesn't last a day. Here's one of the most, I think, important points on this. Water has weight. Gravity works with water. What does water do? It always seeks the lowest spot. It operates on gravity. Water seeks a way to go downhill, and it does it very efficiently. So if you're going to have a flood that could cover part of a continent or a continent, you're going to have what? You're going to have water initially that's going to be hundreds of feet high, maybe a 1,000 feet high or so above sea level. Tsunamis are over in moments. When a tsunami wipes out a significant part of humanity, they don't last for ten and a half months. Within days, there's four or five feet of water, and it's a little bit of a high mark historically. But the tsunami itself can't stay hundreds of feet high. It's just gone. The kind of flood described here lasted 10 to 11 months before it dissipated. Gravity doesn't allow that. Hundreds or thousands of feet of water is unsustainable beyond a moment of crisis. Another example of that would be tides. Tides disallow a, a significant local flood because what is a tide? It's a gravity issue. Tide is the moon connecting with the oceans or water on the planet and continuing to raise the water level wherever the gravity of the moon is hitting the earth. 
If you had a continent underwater, it wouldn't last because there'd be so much water that the moon would continually pull that extra 100 or 200 feet of water around the globe to some degree. You couldn't have a flood that would stay for any amount of time. Gravity, tides would not allow it. Another point, the ark landed on a mountain. We actually know where this mountain is. There are people who look for the ark. There are people who claim they've seen it. We have no evidence of that that's for certain. But some people have thought in the glacial um, parts of Mount Ararat, I don't know if you're familiar with Mount Ararat, there's a couple of mountains in Turkey that are part of this mountain range. And this is the mountain that the Bible says it landed on in this range. We, we see the mountains there. I saw a picture of them this week. They're full of glaciers. So some people believe the ark is there. Some people thought they'd seen it. There's really no evidence of that that we can really point to with certainty. But here's my point. The two primary peaks in Ararat are 17,000 feet and 13,000 feet. Now, I'm not saying the ark landed at the top. I don't care if the ark landed a quarter of the way up at 4,000 feet. The ark is described as landing on the mountain. You can't have that much water, again, staying that long with gravity and tidal situations that after 10 and a half months, this ark is partway up a mountain. How did that happen? It only happens if you have a global flood. And finally, the dove experiment. You know, Manoah's sending out this dove and it can't find any place to land. You just wouldn't have that uh, with a local flood. So, I'm going to be biased towards the Bible is written as history in these chapters. So I just want to close with a few, a few uh, quick points that relate to what we said. And then next week, we're going to dive into the harder scientific stuff surrounding this. First, be careful of the domino effect. And, and what I'm saying here is, I think that as Christians, you know, we don't want to swallow our brains to be Christians. I don't want to. And I'll talk about that in a moment. So all of us want to believe if something's really scientifically accurate, we should be believing it. We shouldn't deny it. I agree. We're not talking about a flat earth here. But be careful of the domino effect when we quickly dismiss what the Bible says. Because when we start doing that, it leads to being willing to dismiss it in other places where the consequences are far, far more serious. It's a dangerous trend. Second, hermeneutically, Give the Bible's plain sense the benefit of the doubt. Genesis 1 through 11 is written as historical narrative, just like Genesis 12 through 50 is. It's not that different. This is the history, creation, early man, genealogies, the flood, early man again, genealogies, the Tower of Babel, the dispersion of languages and peoples. It's written as historical narrative. It's written as history. Give the Bible's plain sense the benefit of the doubt. Make other things prove the Bible wrong rather than the other way around. And third, science and the Bible are not in conflict. They aren't. True science is going to reflect accuracy. I believe the Bible reflects accuracy. But scientific disciplines have biases. You would say, I have a bias. I do have a bias. I absolutely believe this is God's word. I do have that bias. I admit that. But let's also admit that astronomy, geology, and paleontology all have biases in which they need to explain the history of everything apart from God. They have to. They have to, to follow their view of the scientific method. So give the Bible a chance. Next week, we're going to get into the geology, paleontology, anthropology. We're going to get into all of that stuff. And so I'm sure you're really looking forward to that, more than I am probably. All right. 
All right, well, we're going to have our worship team. I realize this is not exactly a heart-pounding kind of sermon, is it? It's like you not feel convicted of a whole lot after this. This is an academic exercise, but i got to tell you it's important because these are the kinds of assaults that have been made on Christian faith for the last 150 years. And historically, when these assaults were made on faith, it decimated the church. 150 years ago or so when Darwin wrote his Origin of Species, this isn't in my notes. You're just getting this one for free because you got an extra day, all right? You get an extra day, so I'm taking an extra two minutes, all right? When Darwin wrote his Origin of Species, and there's questions about what Darwin really believed. He evidently wasn't necessarily trying to hurt Christianity, and some speculate he may have been a Christian. I'm not sure where Darwin was coming from. And I think by the end of his life, he might have regretted some things he wrote. I think there's some evidence of that, too might not have believed it himself because he said we'd be finding all these transitionary species which we've never found and he said if that didn't happen his theory was wrong so you've got darwin he writes this origin of species and what happened was the scientific community said this is just all true it's all true billions of years and transitionary species do you know what happened in the church i'll tell you what happened in the church this must not be true this, therefore, must not be true. Everything can be explained with natural causes. Therefore, what we've believed about God is not true. And it didn't stop in Genesis 1 through 11. It stopped with Jesus must not be the Son of God, there aren't miracles, and everything needs to be explained through natural causes. That's the problem. That's why there's a domino effect. So be careful with this. I know this is not a heart-wrenching kind of topic, but it is important because it undergirds the intellectual basis for our faith in other areas. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. And God, we, we look at your word, and we, we believe we're all smart people here, and we struggle because there are just so many competing views of how everything came to be in this world around us. And a lot of that exists right here in Alberta. There's just incredible stuff here with the mountains and, and the the. the the tar pits and the, and the fossilization of dinosaurs and so many things that, that we try to put the pieces into place and, and make history make sense with your word. And we all have good intentions. And I just pray that you would help us to navigate uh, through these issues together and recognize that uh, we all want the truth. But we don't want to easily dismiss what your word says. Because when we start dismissing what your word says, we tend to not know where to stop. So I pray that you would help us to be seekers of truth not afraid of science, not afraid of reality, but seekers of truth in all ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again, and God bless you.